open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. Genesis 18, verse 16. All right. So last week, we kind of saw that the Lord had a visitation with Abraham and Sarah, uh, where he had two angels that were passing through with him. It was during that time that the Lord once again affirmed that Sarah was going to have a child sometime around a year from that day. But that wasn't the only reason that they were on that journey. There was actually a sobering event that was about to take place, one that would become synonymous with judgment and destruction, even to this day. When you think about this story, we think of judgment, we think of destruction. And it serves as a warning to us all that unrepentant sin will eventually be judged. It's something that eventually is going to have judgment. So let's kind of pick up and we'll, uh, we'll get into the story a little bit in here in verse 16. It says, The men got up from there and looked over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what I am about to do from Abraham? Here we see the, the departure of the two guests, the two angels, they leave. But as they were leaving, the Lord asked a question. And I don't believe this was him seeking advice from the angels or anyone else. I think that uh, it was rather to be understood as, his, as him making a declaration that he wasn't going to hide this significant event from Abraham. It could have been something more like, far be it from me to hide what I'm about to do from Abraham. Or perhaps you could think of it like, you know, should I hide this from Abraham? You know, kind of that type of questioning. That's probably why he just went immediately into what he did right after he asked that question, his reasonings for doing so. In verse 18, it says, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. So the Lord lists two reasons here that Abraham should be in the know about these events that are about to take place. First of all, he was mentioning that Abraham would need to know the scope of his own himself becoming a blessing to all nations. He wanted him to understand the scope of this. This wasn't just that Abraham was going to be a blessing to his immediate family, but he would go on to become a blessing to the nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth. Just think about that. Both Jews and Gentiles alike, including the people that we're about to read about here, the Gentiles. He was showing how that's going to be affected by that. Secondly, Abraham was to use this example to serve as instructive for future generations about the importance of doing what was right and just. God was going to show a vivid example of why it was important that they do what's right, they do what's just. By their continuing practices, we know that were going to happen later on, where they were going to have the law and they were going to have to, the requirements of keeping the law, which would come through future descendants. But maintaining the law and doing the things that were right or just were going to be the terms that it took to keep them in that covenant during that dispensation. So it was important for him to understand that as they hid, had passed his time to set that precedent. Now, this was going to be serve as a vivid illustration of the ultimate judgment for disobedience. 
God was allowing him to know what was going on because he was going to show him there is judgment for disobedience, especially when you purposely choose to disobey what God wants you to do. Rebellion. How amazing, though, it got me kind of thinking that all the way through the Old Testament, we see that God had a plan to extend salvation to all the nations of the world. You know, we're so quick to think of, okay, it's Jews and Gentiles, and we understand that, right? But this was before there was Jews. This was like Abraham starting the Jews. God had a plan for all the nations of the earth, both Jews, which would come through the lineage of of, uh, Abraham, and the Gentiles, everyone else that was to be born to that. We know of Ishmael and all those other lines, Cam and Shem and all these things. The whole nations of the earth were going to be blessed through Abraham, and God had a plan all the way through. Paul kind of talks about this in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. It says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. He's talking about the Jews at this point. He says, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness, for God is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So once again, we have a hint right there. A little bit further down... In verses 9 through 13, he talks about, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction, distinction between Jew and Greek, because... The same Lord of all richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So once again, he's showing that after Christ, there's no distinction between a saved Jew and a saved Gentile. We are just saved. Once you're saved, you're a believer of Christ and you are saved. So there's no further distinction between that. We also learned as we've been talking about this, in Galatians 3.29, actually, I think I got the wrong one there. Okay. Let's see if I can find the right one here. Okay, so I can't. So Okay, don't look at that stuff there, okay? Because that's the wrong stuff. We know that we are according to Abraham's seed based on Galatians 3.29 because of our faith that we have put in Jesus Christ. And we're accounted to be part of that seed. That verse is going to show up somewhere here. I don't know where. But that verse is going to show up somewhere. We'll deal with it at that time. But we are Abraham's seed according to our faith in Jesus Christ for our righteousness. It's his righteousness that's imputed to us. And we are engrafted into that. Now, the Lord is going to reveal to Abraham the imminent judgment that he is about to bring on the regions of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely extremely serious. I will go down and see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. So in that verse 20, it says, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. The Hebrew root for outcry used in scripture is really used to describe the cries of the oppressed and the brutalized. 
When you think of like with that word, when it's saying the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, that is coming from the oppressed and those who are brutalized by the people there. Their sins were so grievous that others were crying out to the Lord because of it, and the Lord was listening. No matter how long it went on, how many years that this was taking place, the Lord was hearing their cries. Now, we know that from the time Lot chose to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, that this was already an exceedingly evil place. We'll go back to the slide I showed you earlier. Remember in chapter 13, we have this in there. It says, Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. So when Lot chose to go into this area, it was already a very wicked area. This was common knowledge. Everybody knew that Sodom was an evil place to live. A lot of wickedness was occurring in that. And they were not just a people that was indifferent to God. It wasn't just like, oh, you know, I just, I just am indifferent to it. I don't really think about God. I don't serve him. Do your own thing. If you want to go to church, go to church. I, I'm just not into that. It wasn't like they were indifferent to the whole deal. These people were openly defiant. They were fighting against God. And they proudly displayed their defiance to him for many years. Isaiah 33, chapter, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, This is talking about Judah at this time. It says, The look on their faces testifies against them. Like Sodom, they flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought disaster on themselves. So when you think about that, the Lord describes, when, we, when the Lord thinks of Sodom and Gomorrah, he thinks of a wicked people that flaunted their sin. They were proud of their sin. And he says, woe to them, they bring their own destruction upon them. Now remember, he was talking at this point in Isaiah, this was well after what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, but it served as a reminder of any group of people that choose to live a lifestyle like that. If you're going to flaunt your sin and you're going to be proud about your sin and you're going to display your sin and you don't care what God says about your sin, you bring destruction upon yourself. It's coming. The hammer will eventually drop. So just think about it. At this point... It hadn't even been, it was just actually a little bit over 400 years since the flood. Just think about that. It's only been 400 years since the flood. And at this time, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were so grotesquely involved with their sin and flaunting it and fighting against God. And they were just super proud of their own right to live however they wanted to live. That they completely forgot that God wiped out the earth 400 years ago for similar actions of wickedness. They completely choose to just completely disregard that. It's like it never even happened to them. And it was only 400 years before this time. In verse 20, we see that the Lord lets Abraham know that he, heard, that he hears what's going on. He hears the cries of the oppressed. And then in verse 21, he shows him, he sees what's going on. So the Lord hears and the Lord sees. That's an important thing to understand. Whenever sin is involved, he hears and he sees what's going on. Now, did God have to show up as a theophany in order to see what was really happening? Or did he already know? Of course he already knew what was going on. He didn't have to take a field trip to go figure out, oh, let's go check it out for myself. Let's see what's happening. Him going to sea was not for his own benefit, but for the reassurance of Abraham that the Lord does not act solely 
based upon what other people claim to be happening. He verifies these accounts himself. Abraham needed to know that. Remember, the Lord is building his relationship with Abraham. He called him out of a Gentile nation which had lots of worship of false gods and everything else. He is showing him, I don't just hear what people say. I don't base my judgment off of hearsay or other people's opinions. I will go and see it for myself. I will see what's going on. I hear exactly what's coming up to me. And he wants him to know that he will repay according to what truth really is, not just somebody's opinion. And I'm grateful that we have a God like that, because I'll tell you what, sometimes, you know, sometimes we, we see situations wrong. We believe that somebody has greatly wronged us. And then sometimes we realize we were wrong. They really, that was not their motive. That was not what they were trying to do. Just the situation presented itself that way. And I'm grateful that the Lord didn't like just go out and say, I'm going to smash these people for Clint because they harmed him and they did him wrong. I'm grateful that he sees for himself the truth of what really occurs. I'm grateful that he hears for himself what really is going on. His judgment does not depend on my biases or my opinion. You know, we, during this time, we have such divisiveness within our country. Imagine all the prayers that are going up to the Lord about the opposite team. Okay? Imagine all the things, whether it's Antifa or Proud Boys or Republicans and Democrats or Kanye. I mean, whatever it is, you know, it's like you don't know what prayers are going up. But I guarantee you there's a lot of angry prayers right now. You know, like David Psalms, like, smash out their teeth, God. Send them to the pit of hell. You know what I mean? Just all those things that, we're, that people are doing because they're so angry and they're so certain that they see it exactly right. Like, they got it locked in. Everybody else on the other side doesn't see it clearly at all. And everybody's upset with everybody else. And we're like, Lord, judge them and take care of this. And we need justice now. And if there's justice, I know that you'll do what I'm saying because I'm seeing it perfectly. And everybody else is all messed up. I thank God that God says, no, I'll check this out myself. I'll see exactly what's going on. I see exactly what's happening. Because when the Lord judges, we have to remember that it's not just like a temporary thing. We're talking eternity. When it comes to the, ju- the judgment that we're about to see here, there was eternal ramifications. Not only would this serve as a reminder, and sometimes we get so focused on this, that this is a reminder of unrepentant sin and how God deals with that, but we need to remember that these were actual people who lived. These were people, these were souls that existed. These are people that died in unrepentant sin, and as bad as the destruction was, it was nothing compared to hell and eternity in hell. Those were souls that at that moment ended up in that place. So we can never forget that, that whenever God's judgment comes in, like we're asking, what is the thing that's going to happen after their judgment? If God does drop the hammer and perhaps their life is taken or their sin catches up to them and you know, takes their own life, whatever it is, what happens to them after that moment? We always have to keep that in mind. The death itself or the judgment that we see on this earth is nothing compared to what eternity holds. We have to remember that God's vengeance is greater than anything we could ever wish upon anyone. That's why Romans 12, 19 says, Friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to God. 
He will repay. We don't have to be out there trying to make these things happen. Because God's vengeance is much more fierce and severe and eternal than anything that could happen on this earth for any kind of payment for sin. Now, that should be a terrifying thought to anybody who thinks that they have escaped judgment in this life. Perhaps people, there's murderers and rapists. There's people who steal and lie and do all kinds of stuff, right? There's, there's some pretty gross things that happen. Child molestations. I mean, all kinds of things that we know people have gotten away with, right? We all agree with that. There's things that have been terrible that have happened on this earth. We know a bunch of stuff that has happened, and we look at like the Ted Bundys, and we think of all the people that have been caught doing horrible things. But how many people have actually done atrocities to the human race, and they got away with it? They thought. There's great comfort in knowing that God sees it, God hears it, And vengeance comes from God. They won't escape that. They aren't going to escape that. They aren't going to be able to to just slide through eternity because they didn't get caught here on earth. The Lord himself will repay for those things. But that should should kind of freak us out as well. Because I'll tell you what, I, I don't necessarily want to be in a situation where the Lord, you know, where I have to stand before him because of some sin that I have done. Now I understand my sins are forgiven. But I'll tell you what, I don't want the consequences for unrepentant sin. Because as a child, I know there's still consequences. My sins may be forgiven and I may still go to heaven. Uh, It's not like it's going to disqualify me from entering heaven. But I'll tell you what, I can really mess my life up here on earth, can I? And there are going to be some harsh consequences that the Lord brings into my life. Really long, lingering consequences. So I want to be careful about those things. In verse 22, it says... The men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So those two men head off. And Abraham, I, I love this because it says, Abraham stepped forward and said, he stepped up. Those two guys are going off and he sees what's about to happen. The Lord just pronounced judgment. He's heard their cries. He's, he's going to see it for himself. Judgment is coming. Abraham has put the pieces together. He knows this is going to be bad. This, when the Lord drops the hammer on this, it's going to wipe these people out. And when those two angels go off, he goes directly to the Lord and he steps forward. And he asks him a very direct question. And his question is this. Will you, talking to the Lord, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? I love the honesty and transparency of that question. Because I guarantee at that moment, he was thinking of Lot. At that moment, he knew, Lord, you're going to level Sodom and Gomorrah. You're going to destroy it because it is a wicked, wicked place. But I have people that I care about who live there. I, I have Lot there and his family. Are you going to sweep them away with your wrath just like everyone else? Are they going to be caught up in this? Is this going going to be collateral damage? Are you just going to go in and wipe them all out? Because the nation itself is so wicked. And I think that we've all 
if we're honest, we've asked similar questions to God, especially when it seems that someone who appears to be innocent in a particular circumstance suffers some kind of harm or even dies at the hands of somebody else's wickedness. When we see that somebody else's sinfulness and their wickedness hurts somebody who was innocent or kills somebody who's innocent, don't we kind of ask those questions to God? Will you really allow this to happen, God? It wasn't their fault. They were innocent, and yet you allowed this to happen, or are you going to allow this to happen? Those are heartbreaking circumstances, but it's important to remember that it wasn't God's judgment that was about to take them out. That wasn't the root cause. The root cause was man's sinful actions that brought about that judgment. And we have to always remember that when we see the judgment of God and when we see that there's consequences that are in people's lives. We have to remember that it's not God just going around dropping wrath wherever he wants just to do it. These are consequences for sinful choices. Choices that he says, I don't want you to make. Choices that he gives an escape from, even if you made the wrong decision. He gives you an escape by saying, repent. Forgiveness is available to all. Turn from that sin. Give it to me. But if you choose to reject that and you choose not to accept his ways, there are consequences. And ultimately, he's righteous. There will be judgment based on those things. When it comes to the issue of bad things happening to good people, it's much more complicated than any one particular circumstance. I mean, for instance, we can all think of one example in the Old Testament, right? Bad things happening happening to good people, Job. Boy, if there was ever an example of bad things happening to good people, it's Job. There was a book that I had in children in children's ministry and youth ministry, and it was really, really helpful. And the title was really a good book because what I would have is I would have parents that have kids that are teenagers, and then all of a sudden this kid just flies off the wall and just gets into rebellion. I, I remember one one kid in particular. Um, it was a very prominent family within our ministry. Great family, godly family, family serving and just wonderful, wonderful people. And they had two kids and they were rock stars and they just were really godly kids. And then they had the third kid and he was not so godly. He did not like going to church. He didn't. I mean, it wasn't like they changed their tactics with him. It wasn't like they're like, whew, I am worn out. We're just going to let you do whatever you want in life. I mean, they were trying hard. But this kid had a rebellious spirit in him, a very, very rebellious spirit. And they would bring him to youth group and he would just sit there and scowl and he would just, he just had an attitude all the time, every time he came in. And I remember the culmination was this kid, they eventually let him go to to public school because he had been going to, to private school, to Christian school for all these years, but it was, they thought it was actually furthering his rebellion because he hated it and he didn't want to be there so he wanted to be with his friends so he got with his friends and then he started drinking and partying and and ultimately he threw a Maltel cocktail at some other guy and caught his car on fire I mean it was just a mess got this kid like you know arrested I mean it was a bad bad situation and I always remember the mother coming into my office and she was just crying and she's like how did we go so wrong with him how did it go so bad what did we do wrong? And it made me start researching, you know, hey, Lord, what can I do to encourage this poor mom and her husband and very godly people? And the title of the book is When Good Kids Do Bad Things. And I started reading through that and it was like, man, 
It just, it was like aloe for their wounds because the parents were so embarrassed because they were prominent within the ministry and, and they were just, they felt like they failed, you know? And sometimes there's things that just go wrong in life. Whether it's a rebellious kid or, or perhaps there's things that happen to you that are beyond your control and there's, there's really terrible sick circumstances. Maybe there's a death in the family or financial hardship or whatever it is. And sometimes we're like, Lord, why do you let bad things happen to good people? Where does this come from? In Job, we see that, that God allowed massive tragedies in his life dis, despite the fact that he was described as one who was upright, a God-fearing man, and one who shunned evil. It really took 38 chapters for him to come to terms with, why is this happening to me? And sometimes I'm a lot like Job. I'm like, Lord, what chapter am I in? You know, Are you going to take me through all 38 chapters of my life to get me to stop whining about my problems? You know, where I feel like, why is this happening? Eventually, though, he did. He kind of reset his thinking. But even in that, when you study the book of Job, the Lord never answers why. Never tells him why. He just corrects him on who he was, who, who God was himself, and his sovereignty. And one thing that comes, becomes very, very apparent in the book of Job, and I don't mean to like ruin it for you, but you understand that God is sovereign and that he has a plan for everything. And nothing happens that is outside of his control. It becomes very, very clear that absolutely nothing happens that is outside of God's control. Not even Satan himself. Nothing takes place where God is not sovereign. Circumstances and everything. And you just realize that, wow, you're so far beyond my understanding of, of you, God. And sometimes we, we see situations that occur in people's lives and we don't have an answer for it. We can't explain it. We can't sit there and say, well, this happened clearly because of this. And look at the good that's going to happen. All we have are the promises of God that says all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We have the promises, but sometimes we look at the circumstance and we go, that doesn't make sense, God. How am I supposed to encourage these people with that? And sometimes like Job, he just reminds us of, I have a purpose for everything. I have a plan for everything. And I am sovereign. And your, your ways are not my ways. And sometimes you don't fully comprehend. And sometimes I haven't revealed completely what I'm doing. But I can assure you of this. Everything is useful. Everything is being used for my glory and for your good. Even if it's bad. I'm still working. I can relate to the question that Abraham has. Lord, are you really going to do that? Are you going to really wipe out those, the good people along with the wicked? Is that going to happen, God? It's at that moment that I have to yield my understanding to the Lord himself for the things that I don't quite understand. I didn't actually put this verse in here, but it's one that you really should know. It's in Deuteronomy 29, 29. And it says, the hidden things belong to the Lord. There are some things in life that the Lord manifests and makes clear 
and, and he shows us openly what's going on. But there are some things that we come to and we just have to hold on to that, that the hidden things, the things we don't completely understand, those things belong to the Lord. That's him that's doing whatever he's doing. And for whatever reason, he's withheld that information from us. Another thing that's very important to remember, though, is to have a right perspective of us. Because even if we somehow feel righteous in some particular circumstance, none of us are righteous in the truest of senses. You may be looking at yourself, I am innocent. I did nothing to deserve to be beat up by this person. They were a stranger, had nothing to do. I don't even know what happened or you got robbed or, you know, whatever else it is. I mean, whatever the tragedy that occurs in your life, it's real easy. Where the first thing we look at is say, I'm a victim. I didn't deserve this at all. I was absolutely innocent. And maybe in that circumstance you were, but in the truest of sense, you aren't innocent. You're a sinner just like me. See, the Bible's super clear about this. In Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Do you get the point? Like <laughs> He really spelled that out, right? There's no one, and he doesn't say except me. He calls himself in another place the chief of sinners. I'm the worst offender of all. There's no one who is righteous. Our only hope in this life comes a few verses later in verse 22. It says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only righteous standing we have is through Jesus Christ. The only perfection that we will achieve, the only absolute pure innocence that will ever be accredited to us is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. We, we are guilty. You may not be guilty of that one particular circumstance. Maybe you're going to be able to stand before God and say, I didn't deserve that. But remember, he's, he's looking at the whole spectrum. He's looking at how that affects other people, how that affects you, how that affects your salvation, how that affects your maturity, how that displays his grace, how, how you are a witness to the rest of the world who's watching. Because if anybody was ever wronged, it was Jesus Christ. And he's called us to be wrong too. And because of the way that he responded to being wronged, Salvation was open to the world. Imagine if he had not allowed himself to be wronged. We would not have the cross. We would not have his crucifixion. We would not have his death, burial, and resurrection. It would not have happened. He had to allow himself to be wronged. And because he did that as a victim, if there was ever a victim, Jesus Christ was a victim. If there was ever somebody who truly, in the truest of senses, was innocent, it was him. If ever there was a person that was truly 100% righteous, it was Jesus. And he was wronged. And at that moment, everybody looking at it, it didn't make any sense at all. Nobody understood at that moment. Why would the Father allow this? 
we look back and we go, aha, I see why. This had to happen for me. And I want to suggest to you that there may be some things that happen in this life that you aren't going to understand right at that moment. It's not going to make sense. You can say, I'm a victim and I have been wronged and this is unjust. But you have to remember, the secret things belong to the Lord. And He has a purpose and a plan for every event that occurs. Even the stuff that we look at and we go, this is wrong. God is sovereign. He's using it all. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is useless. Everything is being used. So because of Abraham's clear concerns for Lot, Abraham just moves right into intercession. He like he asked God the question, are you really going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then he starts interceding. He doesn't even stop to get an answer. He's like, he starts bombarding God with questions. Just like, he, it just reminds me of a kid. Just the way that he does it. But we've all been this way. Verse 24. What if there are 50 righteous? Hypothetically speaking, Lord. <laughs> Hypothetically speaking. And it cracks me up. There's hundreds of thousands of people that were living in this town. I'm sure. He starts with 50. He knows how messed up this city is. Okay? He's like, hypothetically speaking, what if there's only 50 righteous people in the entire city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? Verse 25, God says, yep. No. He says, you could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? Verse 26, the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, Since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again. Suppose 40 are found there. I mean, you can see his confidence is just waning. He's like, I, I started way too high. Uh, 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Verse 30. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry. And I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry. And I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. It's an example of what we need to do as well. Maybe not in such a tedious fashion, bargaining with the Lord. But we do need to move from being concerned for the lost to interceding for them. And that's what he did. 
He heard that destruction, he recognized the signs. He heard what the Lord had said, and he saw that destruction was coming. And he immediately went into intercession mode. He started praying for them. Isn't it interesting that he didn't like take off running towards Sodom? He didn't like, I got to save Lot. I, I need to go tell him. I need to get him out of there. I'll shoot him a text. You know, I got to do something to give him a heads up. Destruction is coming, right? He didn't do that. First thing that he did was went directly to who? The Lord. And he started interceding for them. So many times we have people that we love that don't know the Lord and they're living in sinful lifestyles and we can see that their sin is going to catch up with them, right? You can see it happening. Yeah, the consequences are coming. We've unfortunately lived through those things. So we're like, the consequences are coming. As I say often, the hammer is going to drop. I know it's coming. There's going to be consequences for these sinful behaviors. And I just wish they would listen to me. Maybe that's a mistake. Maybe we put too much emphasis on going to them and trying to wake them up, try to shake them out of their sleep, try to get them, please repent, turn from it. You got it. You're ruining your life. Stop doing these things. Maybe the first step should not be go to them. We don't run to Sodom trying to spare them and wake them up from the wrath that's coming against them. We run to the Lord and we start talking to him. And we start saying, Lord, will you not spare them? I, again, we don't have to systemize this. You don't have to approach the Lord like this. But it's an example of the hard work of prayer. You know, for us, we go right to it. We're like, Lord, please spare them and don't destroy my nephew Lot. Please spare him. Amen. I read through that and I'm like worn out reading it. Because I think of how I would be if I were the Lord. I'd be like, stop! <laughs> Just get to your point. You know, I don't need to hear it over and over. I, just tell me what it is. Spare me the drama, the theatrics. Just say it. I think what it shows is that Abraham was relentless. Not trying to wear down God. He's just working through it with God. Prayer oftentimes is, is not necessarily for us to convince God to do something because, again, God is sovereign. It's usually an opportunity for us to understand God. It's, not, it's an opportunity for us to align ourselves with Him. And sometimes we have to go through a lot of prayer to get aligned because we start out with this whole grand thing. We're like, Lord, would you please just give me a new house, Lord? Brand new house. This is what I need for my family. And then eventually over five or six or seven or eight years, whatever it is, it's like, Lord, please just provide anything. <laughs> I'll take anything. You know, it's like he, he just allows us kind of whittle it down and whittle it down and whittle it down until we get to the core of what he wants to give us. And then it's at that point that he says, that's where I'm trying to get you. Sometimes when we have to pray and pray and pray and pray, perhaps your prayers are too lofty, lofty and maybe too self-centered. Maybe God's trying to get that down and trying to get it down to what really he wants you to get, be praying about. 
really the heart that he wants you to have in the midst of that great need that you have. It's not saying that it's not a need, but perhaps you're still not aligned with what he wants to give you. And maybe through time, maybe through multiple prayers and time, he whittles it down more and more and more like what we see there. Kind of boils it down, right? So that we get to the sauce, we get to the stuff that it's supposed to be there, exactly what it's supposed to be, getting burning off the rest of that stuff. Verse 25 really reveals the truth about God that we must always remember. When he says, you could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You cannot possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? There are situations in life that we have to hold on to that. We see things happening and we have to remind ourselves, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And some translations do what is right. Isn't God going to do the right thing? Sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that. We see things happening. We see things out of control. We see like all these things developing within our country and all this stuff. And we just have to remind ourselves, isn't God going to do what's right? Won't he do what's right? Even if it looks like it's not happening, won't God do what's right? The answer is yes, he's going to do what's right. Even if the situation looks really bad. Next week, we're going to see the result of that intercession for these people. But for today, for today, I just want to leave here understanding the urgency of the circumstance that we face in this country. You know, we like Sodom have survived many years of increasing wickedness without any real severe and total judgment. But for years, our country has just been growing in wickedness and, and lack of godlessness, or I'm sorry, growing in godlessness. The nation is becoming increasingly bold in our defiance. And I believe we're very much, this could be said of our nation right now, of what was said of Judah and Isaiah. The look on their faces testifies against them. Like Sodom, they flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought disaster upon themselves. I think that that could be a fit description of what the Lord could say of us right now. We don't hide our sin as a nation. We flaunt it. We brag about it. We think that we're entitled to do whatever we want. We, we burn Bibles and we say that we don't need God and we do everything that we can to blaspheme his name and what he's done. And it's only going to get worse. We know that, right? It's just going to get worse. This is sweeping the nation. You know, it's funny. They talk about like all the stuff going on in California where the taxes are too high and all this. And in a lot of that liberal mindset, and, and I don't mean that in a political sense, but spiritually speaking, that I don't need God mindset, you know, I'm, I'm an independent type person myself, uh, all this, that's bleeding through the rest of the nation. And it's changing our whole nation because they're leaving those areas. Arizona is no longer the same Arizona it was when I left 11 years ago. I couldn't believe some of the stuff my dad has been telling me about what's happening, you know, politically in that area and just some of the mindsets that's available. And I thought, man, Arizona was always really a very conservative, especially spiritually speaking, place. It's not anymore. 
It's on the border. It's like 50-50 on just about everything spiritually speaking now. It changed quick. And this is happening throughout the country. This is not just, you know, just the states closest to the West Coast. It's happening. With that mindset comes a defiance against God. A fierce independence against God. I don't want anything to do with you, God, and you're not going to tell me what I need to do. In a sense, saying, I'm my own God. I'll do what I want to do. I don't need church. I don't need any organized religion. We see this manifesting itself throughout the country with riots, violence, sexual immorality. And just bottom line, rejecting God completely. I believe that we're bringing disaster upon ourselves as we flaunt these things. I think our country is bringing disaster upon themselves. It's not going to come. We, it may come through a, you know, the form of an attack. I don't know. But I can tell you for sure, it'll only come if God allows it. Whether it's massive sickness or whatever else it is. I, I don't know. All I know is for years we have openly defied God. And we've become increasingly bold against him. Increasingly bold in our sins. Churches are hurting more than ever. I believe this is not, I mean, what we, what we see in our little church, it's just a microcosm of what's happening in bigger churches. There's a lot of people who will not come back to church, I promise you. It doesn't matter what vaccine comes out, they're not coming back. The, the church is in a very weak state right now because people are start, starting to feel like they don't need fellowship and they don't have to go to church. And again, I don't believe that going to church makes you godly, but it does make you healthy, spiritually speaking. It helps you, and it, and it increases the health of the church itself, the body of Christ. You know, parts are missing. It, you're not functioning 100% when parts are missing. Just think of it as your body. If, if there's parts of your body that fall off and just won't cooperate, it's going to hurt the rest of the body. Well, guess what? Churches across America right now are hurting because massive parts of the body no longer think it's necessary to go to church. Now, again, I understand there's some who are in high risk and all this stuff. I'm not negating that. You guys are all wearing masks, and, and I understand that. We, we still are trying to walk that line of making sure that there's some safety precautions and all this. But here's my, my prediction. Even if you didn't have to wear those masks, even if they came up with a vaccine that they said is 100%, it's going to fix everybody, you have nothing to fear, it's going to be... A, it's going to be a while before we see the amount of people in here that we did before this. Because a lot of people have grown accustomed to not needing church. And they've been told we can just watch it on TV or the internet and it's the same thing and it's not. It's not. There's something special about being gathered together as believers. And I can't explain it. All I can do is tell you it's true. There's power in that, and there's, there's healing, and there's comfort. There's encouragement. There's rebuking. There's all kinds of things that happen when you come together as the body of Christ. And when we start saying that that's not necessary, not only is the world spinning out of control, getting wickeder and wickeder in the things, but the church is getting weaker and weaker. That's a bad combination. That's a really bad combination. That's why I'm looking right now and I'm saying, this could be us. For they have brought disaster upon themselves. 
Listen, the only, the only hope for convicting people or to change behavior so that we repent of sin is through the truth of the Bible. It's through Jesus Christ himself. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction. But if you're not in a place where that can happen, if you're not in the word of God, you're not seeking prayer, you're not seeking fellowship, it's pretty easy to destroy yourself because in your mind, you, your heart can mislead you. That's a, that's a bad place to be. This, I think, we can, we can use this section of Scripture as a wake-up call to us that what is happening right now within the United States of America, we need to be praying for people right now. We don't celebrate, I don't celebrate anybody that I see that their sins are catching up with them and they're about to reap judgment, whether it's our nation. I, I don't know what's going to happen with the United States of America. As a matter of fact, I mean, you notice here, like Abraham was really talking about people. And Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't exist today. It's gone. It's wiped out. I don't know what's going to happen with the United States of America over time. But what I can tell you is there's a lot of eternal souls that comprise the United States of America. There's a lot of, there's what, 300 million people in the United States of America. That's a lot of eternal souls. And I don't know what's going to happen as far as our nation repenting and turning from the ways that we've been doing things. But what I can tell you is we better get a heart for the people who are around us that are heading towards judgment if the Lord doesn't intervene. And we better start praying for them. And just like instead of running around with a bullhorn and telling everybody, you need to repent and turn, you're going to go to hell, all this stuff. We need to take it right to the Lord first. And we need to start praying for them and saying, God, will you spare them? Will you spare this country? Will you cause a revival? Will you bring about an awakening? We need you to do something, Lord. We need you to become alive in the hearts of your people once again. We need you to wake up the church. I, I would just beg you guys to pray that. Would you be, please join me in praying throughout the week? Will you awaken the church? The church is, is deathly ill right now. We, we've had, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 years of sensitive seeking, you know, philosophies in church. We've not been teaching the Bible. We have not been talking about sin. We haven't been talking about repentance. We've been more concerned about having a cool worship band than teaching the word of God. As a country, we need to pray that God will wake up people. Within the church, begin with us. Awaken us, God. Awaken us. Because it has to start with us. And then when we're awakened and our spirit is now longing for God and longing for that relationship, we should now be praying for others who are dead spiritually. They're blinded to it. They're, they're peddling eyes. It's like, that illustration that I've shared before, it's like they're tap dancing over hell on a, on a glass surface. They don't even see it and they're just tapping away and just, oh, I'm, and they don't understand. It's cracking beneath their feet. They're headed towards destruction. They're headed towards judgment. Judgment will come if the Lord judges this nation. And it's not so much just the loss of America, it's the loss of souls for eternity that matters. That's what's important. 
Every one of those people that were in Sodom and Gomorrah, every one of them had a soul. And every one of them at that moment stepped into eternity. Abraham is a picture of understanding that as a believer and pleading with the Lord on their behalf. That's called intercession. Saying, Lord, they're so lost and they don't see it. They're blind to it. Would you open their eyes? Would you help them to repent? Would you help them to see? We can't be like the anti-Abraham that once the Lord revealed the judgment that's coming, we can't just say, okay, Lord, have a good day. Hope that goes well and go back in our tent. Abraham, like, stepped up, right? He stepped up and went right to the Lord and said, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? The wicked? Will you judge them, God? Will not the judge of the entire earth, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? That's the confidence that we have to have right now with our Lord. God, you're the judge of the whole earth. Won't you do what is just? Won't you do the right thing? Of course you will. Would you open their eyes? Would you open their eyes, open their hearts, so that they can repent, so that you can save them like you've saved me? That's the heart we've got to have. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, for your word, and I thank you for the example of Abraham. And I know that it was personal to him because he was concerned about Lot. But I bet he was concerned about all those people. He went and risked his life to save these people. He went into battle for total strangers in order to save Lot and those people. He cared about them. And he saw that destruction was coming. He saw that judgment was on its way. And instead of running ahead and trying to warn them with his own efforts, he turned directly to you and cried out to you and said, Lord, will you not do what is right? He pled with you, Lord, over and over again. Lord, give us the same hearts that we care enough about people who we see that don't know you, the unrepentant, those who are even evil, Lord, living in lifestyles that are completely defiant against you. They're not just... Pretending you don't exist, they're fighting against you. Help us to have hearts that care enough, Lord. Open our hearts so that we would plead for those who don't know you so that you may save them, Lord. We thank you because we know that you answer those prayers and you do work. And we're going to see next week, you listen to those prayers. God, would you please, would you help us to believe that you will do the right thing? And open our hearts so that we can pray for the right thing to happen in each person's lives that we care about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.